internet isn't like a force of nature that we can't control. You know, it's not a hurricane or a tornado. The internet is a thing created by people and we can change the way it works and we can regulate it and we can think about how to make it more compatible with democracy. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Ann Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic, a former columnist for The Washington Post, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. Her latest book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, in which she explores why people, including former friends of hers, are drawn to strongman cults, nationalist movements, or one-party states. She has written recently in The Atlantic about how social media poses a threat to democracy and what should be done about it, and how to deal with insurrectionists who live among us. Anne Applebaum, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your latest piece this week in The Atlantic deals with your reaction to reading a new intelligence assessment looking at attempts, foreign attempts, to interfere with the American election. Uh, And on one level, you were completely unsurprised by what you read, even though it was shocking. Uh, So just talk about what this latest assessment of efforts to influence the U.S. election told us. In essence, the most important thing about the report was that it told us things that we'd seen happening in real time. In other words, it told us that Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump's lawyer, was in close contact with um, a a known Russian agent, a a man called Andrei Derkach, who's a Ukrainian, but who who works with Russian intelligence, um, and that the two of them were together seeking to plant Uh, false stories about Joe Biden and his family in the U.S. press. And I mean, we saw that unfold in real time. We saw Giuliani appear on television. We saw some of that material. Some of it popped up in the New York Post. Some of it was featured on um, far right and and right wing uh, television programs. OANN, this One America News Network, did a kind of documentary based on this material. And even as it was appearing at the time, it was pretty clear that it was where it came from and what it was supposed to be. Um, and the report merely confirms that, you know, restates it, um, notes that there's no evidence of Chinese attempts to swing the election and that a few other countries, including Iran, have tried to use online disinformation, but without much impact. But the fact is that this, this, this particular form of Russian disinformation really works only because it has Americans cooperating with it. So Giuliani was working together closely with Russian agent. And we said, again, we saw it happening in real time. Um, Fox News and OANN and other publications agreed to use this information, which we also saw happening in real time, even though the origins of it were pretty suspicious. I mean, so, you know, on the one hand, we didn't really need a um, national intelligence assessment um, of this, uh, you know, of, of this, of this, um, uh, you know, of this form of disinformation. On the other hand, it was quite useful to see it written down that way because it was a reminder of how accustomed we've all become to the idea that, you know, the Russians supply Rudy Giuliani with fake material and then he publishes it in, in, in American publications. Um, and we see this kind of cooperation now, open cooperation between a part of the um, you know, a, a part of the Republican Party and, you know, a country that is, um, you know, that, that, that is, describes itself as an enemy of the United States. 
Um, and somehow it ceases, it ceased to bother people. It's really a very strange story. You write that Russian disinformation works because Americans allow it to work uh, and that some Americans don't care anymore about the harm they do to their country. And then you kind of look ahead at where this is going. Where do you see this going? We've got some very significant midterm elections and, of course, another presidential election uh, in 24. I don't see why if I were the Russian state or if I were, you know, the Russian Russian intelligence, why I would stop trying to do it. There's been no pushback. Um, the, you know, the Trump administration never even fully endorsed the idea that there had been intervention in 2016 to fight the fact that we knew the names and telephone numbers and addresses of, of the agents who um, who, who, who hacked the, the Democratic National Committee and who put, you know, false, you put false information out on Facebook and other forms of social media. They never really acknowledged it. They never really pushed back. Trump, um, on the contrary, we know that Trump had a, a privileged and very private relationship with Putin, which we still don't know very much about. And so why wouldn't they continue? Um, and why won't they continue to find new ways and new people to cooperate with inside the United States? And eventually, although, as I say, this particular report excluded, um, excluded any Chinese intervention, why wouldn't other countries try to do it? I mean, once it turns out to be that easy, you know, all you have to do is show up and say, here's a, here's a, here's a document proving something about Joe Biden in Ukraine, um, and, and, someone, and the president's lawyer takes it up and promotes it, why won't others try it? Why won't, you know, why won't the Chinese eventually try it? Uh, well, let's, just, you know, let's talk about why it's so easy and the infrastructure of propaganda that exists today. Uh, and that is the subject of a, a long feature story that you write in the April issue of The Atlantic. And that's the internet. Um, well, you write that the current design of the internet makes it easier than ever to target vulnerable audiences with propaganda and gives conspiracy thinking more prominence. But you write about how this is not a new phenomenon that when radio was introduced in the 1920s, uh, it was heralded as a way to promote world peace, but that very quickly got turned on its head when radio was taken over by private, private media companies and became a way for Hitler to get his message out to millions of people, both in Europe and here. So how do you deal with the fact that hate is so profitable? I mean, I think hate has, has always been, um, um, profitable and, you know, it has always worked to mobilize people. I mean, it was, you know, going back into human history. I mean, one, one of the things, one of the reasons I wrote about radio was that, um, you know, every time a new form of media has been created, you can see it be used for ill and for good. I mean, when the printing press was invented, it was a fantastic new tool of, you know, it brought literacy to millions of people and meant that people could read the Bible for the first time. It meant that, um, it, it meant that, you know, new kinds of literature would soon be invented. But it also was, um, you know, it, it, it also was a source of division and um, scurrilous writing, uh, you know, and the fact that people could read the Bible for the first time led to this schism in the, in the church. It led to the rise of Protestantism. And that led to hundreds of years of religious wars in Europe. So, you know, every, every time you see a new medium be created, you can see both sides and radio, as you say, is another example. Radio was um, originally thought to, it was going to bring people together, and in fact, 
um, both state governments and private companies learned how to use it in different ways. I mean, so, so Hitler in, in Germany and Stalin in the Soviet Union both used it. Um, but the point, the reason I brought up both of those, um, you know, the, way I, the reason I bring up both of those examples is that they are also part of a larger story about how eventually we learn how to regulate these things. In other words, we eventually regulated radio. Um, we, we eventually, um, you know, you know there, and there were, it was done in different ways. And one of the, the example that we talked about in the article was the BBC, you know, the creation of the BBC in Britain had as its very explicit purpose um, the idea was to, to take radio and make sure that it was a tool that was used for democracy, that it would increase public participation, that it would reach everybody in Britain, that it would bring people together instead of dividing them. And it did function that way for a long time. And it's really important that we start to think of the internet that way too. In other words, that the internet isn't like a force of nature that we can't control. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not a hurricane or a tornado. Um, the internet is a thing created by people and we can change the way it works and we can regulate it and we can think about how to make it more compatible with democracy. And by regulation, I don't mean censorship, which is how people almost always want to first talk about it. I mean, you know, what if we began to think about the internet the way you know the British started to think about radio in the 1920s? What if we said, well, why isn't there more space on the internet for public service social media? For, for example, social media that's run not according to algorithms designed to sell the most you know, advertising possible and not according to algorithms that are designed to make people angry and excited and upset, which is how they, this is how Facebook works now. What if the algorithms were designed to create more civil conversation or to help people um, come to consensus? And, and it is actually technologically possible to think along those lines now. You know, what if we use the internet to conduct public debates in constructive ways um, instead of only destructive ways? Um, and there are people out there and the, the piece interviews and speaks to a lot of them who are thinking about this and experimenting with it and trying it. Um, and it's my hope that eventually um, this will rise to the level of higher politics and, you know, and, and, we'll, and we'll begin to implement some of these ideas. I mean, you know, making the internet compatible with democracy, making it help democracy instead of allowing it to, to chip away at democracy, um, I think is one of the most important um, public policy issues for the next decade. You single out Front Porch Forum uh, as an antidote, uh, a way to promote civil discourse. And you write that instead of encouraging users to interact as much and as fast as possible, Front Porch Forum slows the conversation down. Your posts come online 24 hours after you've written them. Uh, how did Front Porch Forum rise to the top of the list of solutions for you? Why, what appeals? It's, it was one of several solutions. I think one of the people who we interviewed mentioned it. Um, um, I think it was um, Nathan Matias, was a, who's, a, who's a scholar at Cornell, who's, who's very interested in the subject of alternative forms of social media and ways of having conversation online. If I were, it was either, it was, it was him or one of the other interviewees. So, um, you know, we then looked at it. We were, we were trying to come up with real world examples of how these, you know, how different kinds of conversations might work and we were looking for some that were already in functioning and there's actually others elsewhere in the world. Um, but that was, that was the one we came upon. So congratulations Vermont for already having, <laughs> already having created, 
created a, a different form of social media. And I mean, and it's worth saying that a lot of these, you know, it may well be that a lot of the a lot of the alternatives to Facebook or the alternatives to the domination of the internet by a few big companies may well start out as very small local initiatives. Um, they may well, and they'll work best really if they come originally from, from, from grassroots organizations. In other words, if they're already serving a need. So it's not somebody at, an, you know, at MIT inventing something. It's something that you know that functions already at a you know in a, at, a, at a lower scale and then begins to spread. Well, and I think too, you know, what's funny about Front Porch Forum? It's very old school in that uh, you know in the days of instant messaging and SMS. Um, it's as you write it. It's just slowing down. You know, it's kind of when you compose an email, it's different than when you send a text. You write in complete sentences, usually in an email where you just write, you know, acronyms, um, LOL, whatever in a text. So yes, it does force you to be a little more thoughtful. And I do find that Front Porch Forum is less uh, toxic than Twitter, for example. Um, I, I want to go to your uh, book. Well, no, let me go to your, your writings following the January 6th insurrection. And you talk about how one of the unsettling things is that a whole lot of people who are sympathetic to the insurrection, uh, and you, you know, there's a debate over what to call them, extremists, secessionists, fascists, white supremacists, rebel, you prefer seditionists, um, that a whole lot of people are sympathetic to them, even now, a couple months later. Um, what do we do about that? So it's very important to remember that what we saw at the Capitol on January the 6th was not normal polarization. It wasn't Republicans versus Democrats or, or right versus left. It was, um, it, it was a group of people who were actually attacking Congress itself. They were trying to prevent Congress from recognizing the next president, from, from naming Joe Biden as president. And they were shouting, hang Mike Pence, and they wanted to kidnap Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it's not, 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 not entirely clear what the, what the long-term plan was, but that was the point of the insurrection. So these are, this is now a group of Americans who object to American democracy. They don't believe anymore in the electoral system. Um, their distrust of the system is so profound that they don't feel part of it at all. Um, and therefore, when, you know, when trying to think about it, we need to think, um, you know, we need to start thinking about other countries where we've had that kind of social division, you know, where, where there's an actual disagreement about the nature of the country. And in the, in the piece that you mentioned, um, I talked a little bit about Northern Ireland, um, which was a country where, you know, where you had, you know, you have one group of people who think their country is Irish and the other who think it's British and there really isn't anything to compromise between them. And one of the solutions that was found in Northern Ireland, I mean, as it's not, it wasn't an entire solution to the problem, but it was a way to get violence, to make sure that there was no more violence, was to change the subject. So in other words, get people talking about something else. It doesn't mean that they'll like each other or that they'll agree with each other, you know, but at least they'll have some common forum to, dis to discuss things. Um, and so, you know, and by the way, I think that the Biden administration is operating a little bit along these lines. So you have not heard Biden talking about Trump. You have not heard him talking about the election. You know, he's just, you know, just doesn't mention it. 
Um, sometimes he gets asked about it and then he gives a one line answer and then he, he, he moves on. He didn't talk about when during the impeachment trial in the Senate, he said nothing, you know, almost nothing. Um, and I think that the, the, the goal is to get Americans to talk about the economy, to get them to talk about jobs, to get them to talk about vaccines, um, to get them to at least be part of an, a different kind of discussion so that at least we're all having a conversation about something that's you know, in reality, in real life, with the hope that if you can integrate people that way, um, the deeper divisions um, will, will matter less. Um, and, you know, and it's not a very satisfying sounding um, solution, but, but if you look around the world, if you look at places where they've had peace building projects or post-conflict projects, you know, where you have people you know, after a civil war or during a civil war, you find that those are the kinds of solutions that work. I mean, the other hard thing for the non-seditionists and for people who were upset and offended by the insurrection um, is that, I mean, obviously with the exclusion of the people who will, who will be sentenced and will go to jail, um, the, the, the vast number of Americans out there who agreed with it or who admired it or who thought there was, you know, who, who still believed the election to have been faked, we all have to find a way to go on living with them. <laughs> Um, we can't, you know, they're not going to be canceled from public life. They're not going to disappear. Um, and continually looking for ways to reach out for them, reach out to them, looking for trusted messengers, you know, people who are able to, you know, for example, you know, it may be that you or I might not be the best person to speak to that, um, to that demographic in the U.S., but maybe there are religious leaders, maybe there are other business figures, maybe there are some politicians um, who will be able to do it, and we should encourage them and hope that they succeed. I mean, it's one of the reasons we should all hope that some of the moderate um, anti-insurrectionist Republican politicians succeed, like Liz Cheney, you know, or Mitt Romney, um, even though we might not agree with their politics in 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 some other ways, um, you know. And 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 of course, that it feels you know people would like to dismiss them, say, well, it's their problem, you know, why can't they learn to get along with us? Um, I have a friend who says the one thing he'd really like to see someday is Fox News going to interview yoga teachers in Brooklyn. You know, why did you vote for Joe Biden? You know, <laughs> tell us what moved you about about the Biden campaign. You know, why don't they try to understand us instead of uh, instead of vice versa? But I, I just worry that I mean, as a given that we all have to live together and share the same country, I mean, we really don't have a choice except to continue trying to find ways to breach that divide. And, and as I said, at least to have a civilized conversation about something. You have some personal experience of this. Uh, you write in your book, The Twilight of Democracy, uh, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. Um, you talk about some of the people you've known personally. Um, your husband served in the Polish government, and you had the experience of seeing people who once supported democracy in Poland now advancing anti-Semitic and, you know, fascist-leaning uh, ideas. Uh, and Laura Ingram of Fox News is a former acquaintance of yours. Um, and you write about her, you write, quote, she has, like so many others in the Fox universe, depicted illegal immigrants as thieves and murderers, despite overwhelming evidence that immigrants commit fewer crimes uh, than native-born native Americans. So what insight can you share about what you've learned about your former friends in Poland and, and your former acquaintance, Laura Ingram? 
So in the book, I'm very careful to go example by example, because I think, you know, the, the human brain is very complex and I'm not going to give a single explanation for anybody's, anybody's behavior. And as I said, the book goes into some detail in, in, in several cases. I mean, I think the one thing that unifies this, generally this group, it's, it's mostly a group of people who were formerly on the center right and have now moved further right and into a more extremist positions generally what unifies them is some sense of disappointment. So they are something, either it's political disappointment, um, my country is not what it used to be, um, I resent the changes that have happened. Sometimes it's personal disappointment. You know, I personally didn't succeed in the journalistic world in the way I felt I should have succeeded. And so I'm gonna take revenge, you know, you know by, by attacking my, my, my former colleagues. Um, but it's usually some sense of loss. And, and when the disappointment becomes profound, you know, if, you know, and you can, you can hear this a little bit in, in, in Laura Ingraham's speech, and you can hear it in, in for, you know, from other people actually in, on, on Fox News, when, when people begin to say things like, this country is dead or dying, you know, this country has changed in ways that are irrevocable, you know, we can't get back the country that we used to know is lost forever. When you hear that kind of language, you should worry because that is the language that leads to radicalism. If everything is terrible and it's all going badly, then then why should you then then why do we have to keep our current political system at all? Maybe it's we should just trash it and start again. Maybe we should blow everything up and think of something different. Um, so so the so the so the really profound disappointment does lead people in these radical directions as it always has. Disappointments have been around for a long time. Why this moment do we have this kind of radicalization? So I think all of us have forgotten the degree to which we are living through in a period of extraordinarily rapid change. And it's economic change, it's demographic change, it's social change, you know, the change in mores is happening very, very quickly. And of course, above all, as we just discussed, there's information change. Um, the way in which people are getting and processing political information is totally different from what it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Um, the, the, this, the, the, and, and the speed of information, the, 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 you know, the amount of emotion in politics, um, I think has, you know, has accelerated you know, processes of division and polarization. Um, in ways that, um, you know, you know in, in ways that we, we you know, we, it's happening so fast we don't even notice. And I also think that there's a part of the public, and um, this includes some of my former friends or some of them just intuitively understand it very well. Um, there's a part of the public that is deeply bothered by change and they're deeply bothered by the constant clash of information, you know, the noise out there. There's so much anger, there's so much emotion. Can't they all just be quiet? Um, and the desire for silence, order, structure, security, safety, um, these are all impulses that I think have in some places turned people against democracy. You know, we just want one leader to make the decisions and we don't wanna to have to hear all this nonsense and this opposition anymore. Um, and you, you have that, you have, you see that instinct in a lot of places. I mean, I can't help but think this is a lot of this is code for white supremacy. You know, the rapid change, the loss, you're describing the loss of privilege that people once had simply by uh, virtue of their birth. They were born white. And so they get jobs, they get a little advantage. 
Um, so in an increasingly diversifying world, is it possible to avoid radicalization as that loss of privilege occurs? So I don't think, I, I agree with you. Um, that's part of the story. I don't think it's the entire story. Um, um, you have loss of you, you have loss of privilege in some cases you have a sense of economic decline you know my children will be poorer than I am which, you know which is which is which is attached to that in some cases you have much less a sense of security which is also part of that so you know the you know the assumptions that I could have made about a stable life I don't have anymore because of because of rapid change and so, so I think there are, I think there are several elements in addition to and you know, in addition to the to, to this resurgence of, of of white supremacy, I mean, I th and I think some of the answers are, um, you know, as we've discussed, to find ways of bridging the political conversation so that it's less um, it's less antagonistic and people feel somehow included in the same conversation. Um, I think there are some economic answers involving making offering people more security, making them feel like they have a more predictable and safe um, future. And so they're less worried about declines in status and so on. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the, the continuing need for, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for education, which is, um, you know, which is sensitive and which isn't, um, you know, which, you know, which doesn't create other kinds of problems. Um, you know, you know, I, one of the, you know, forcing people saying, you know, you have to get used to it or, you know, or, you know, and you, and you don't have a choice. Again, while that would be instinctively what I would like to be able to say, um, isn't necessarily going to work. And we have to look for solutions that will work. How do we, how do we bring people together so they're working on constructive problems together? How do we bring black and white Americans together so they're doing something together? and not shouting at one another from opposite sides of a big fence. Um, how do we, you know, what are, the, what, are the, what are the joint national projects that we could conceive of? I mean, I think that's the, um, I think the answer lies in, 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 in that kind of thinking. Finally, as someone who has written about, as you write, the seductive lure of authoritarianism, where do you find yourself on the spectrum of despair to hope as you look towards the future? So I came to the conclusion not too long ago that for someone like me and, and really for all of us, it's very irresponsible to be pessimistic. You know, I can't tell my children or younger people or my students, you know, that there's no future and democracy's dying. Um, and so I, I continue to work on, you know, I continue to, 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 to look towards the optimistic possibilities. I mean, look, one of the reasons I wrote that article about the internet, which isn't really, you know, it's not the, it's not the subject I've spent my life working on, um, but I felt it was so important to start to think positively, what could we do? Here's a huge problem, how do we fix it? Um, and I, you know, even if you look at the way in the last few months, Americans have managed this vaccine rollout. And admittedly, there's a kind of hunger games element to you know, who, who gets the shot when. And still this huge logistical operation has gone into, um, has, has been set into motion. Um, you know, look, we can solve problems. You know, we, we've solved them in the past. You know, we fixed, we had 
you know, we had monopoly capitalism at the end of the 19th century that was shutting down small businesses and creating all kinds of problems. And we broke up those companies. Um, you know, the internet is once again, you know, has become a monopoly, a place of, uh, you know, where, where small businesses and, 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 and quieter voices are shut down. We can, we can stop that process too. I mean, I think um, remaining optimistic and, and looking for solutions to problems and not just, you know, pointing out the problems, tempting though that is, um, is something, is really something we're all obligated to do. Okay. Well, Anne Applebaum, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. Anne Applebaum is a Pulitzer Prize winning staff writer for The Atlantic magazine. Her latest book is The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>